Hey, you're listening to The Centre Podcast. We're a church based in Dural, Sydney, who love Jesus and so want to make Him the centre of our lives, our community and our world. We're going to learn how to do that right now as we sit down and unpack Sunday's sermon. Well, welcome to another episode of Banter. I'm your host for today, Mitch Levingston. I'd like to introduce my co-host, Murray Lambert. How's it going? Good. <laughs> Mix things up a bit. You know? Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. I felt like I was on NPR or something <laughs> right now. You know, got to play some smooth jazz yeah. in the background. <laughs> you know, we try to keep things professional here. That's it. Nothing, nothing but consummate professionals yes. here, at, here at Banter. <laughs> How you doing, Murray? Yeah, I'm good, man. I'm good. Just uh, getting excited and prepped for Young Adults Treat on the weekend. We're going to head off to Wiseman's Ferry and, yeah, look at uh, a bit of a five-part video series on on Lectio Divina. So it's by uh, the the guys who do Lectio 365, the International House of Prayer. So looking forward to that because I think that, uh, you know, it's a good opportunity to be reminded that, one, God speaks to us through Scripture, and two... We need to create space for that to happen. Mm. Um, yeah, ha- allowing a meditative state for that. Mm. So I'm looking forward to it. And I haven't kind of watched the videos deeply myself yet. So I'm looking forward to seeing mm. what I get out of it as well. Mm. It's kind of the joy of not doing the, the, the yeah. devotionals and the talks myself. I'm like, I'm, what, what am I going to learn? Yeah, I'm yeah. looking forward to it. Yeah. So, it's interesting. Yeah. I was reading something from Dallas Willard uh, earlier. And he said spiritual formation can only happen in community. Mm, that's great. That was like the big, that was the point of the article, mm. the necessity of yeah, Christian community yeah. in feeding. And so that's why retreats are very good because mm. you sort of stick yourself in a Christian community to mm. be shaped and transformed. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've always found, and I'm sure our listeners have found, you know, even the small group that I'm in at the moment, it's amazing when a group of people read a piece of scripture together, the different things that people mm. bring out of it. I'm just like, whoa, like I would have never seen that. I would have never seen that. Um, that is, yeah, throughout most of church history, the way in which scripture was read in a, mm. in a public communal setting. Um, yeah. And yeah, even the sort of exercises in this series that we're going to be going through at the spiritual retreat, they encourage you to do the Lectio Divina as a group. So, mm. hey, like read the passage together, pray together, contemplate, share what each person is sort of seeing in the text. Um, yeah, we are just so, um, yeah, we, we, we're given such greater insight when we journey through text as a community. And I think to, it's reading the scripture in the way that it was designed. Yeah. You see in Nehemiah and he reads the scripture out loud mm. for people like wailing and repenting and yeah yeah that was how it was done or Jesus and when he goes to the synagogue and mm. unrolls the scroll of Isaiah like mm. that was how most people engaged in scripture was yeah. in public yeah so mm. yeah that's what's unusual about the Ethiopian eunuch when he's there in his chariot reading Isaiah to himself that's highly unusual so he must have had tremendous wealth and tremendous education to yeah. be able to Totally. Yeah, read a scroll to yeah, himself. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so Mitch, you're you're uh, you're looking a little extra wise today. <laughs> extra wise. <laughs> Anything coming up for you tomorrow? Yeah, that's my birthday tomorrow. <laughs> big three five. And you got cool. some big 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 exciting plans oh, for you. Oh yeah, I go on IKEA with Rachel. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> what do you what do you what are you uh, in the in the market for at IKEA? Uh, some storage solutions. Uh, and some Swedish meatballs. Yes. <laughs> 
I care is good for storage solutions. Yes. All right. Look, I think that storage solutions are more and more important the uh, more and older your kids get. <laughs> yes. Um, very much so. I feel like Em and I were living quite a minimalist life before George came along and suddenly we have yeah an influx of toys, toys and are. things that people buy. My, we have a beautiful friend who's very, very sweet who evidently has no children of his own because he bought George just the other week a bear that is two times the size of George. And I'm just like, thank you, but we live in an apartment. And of course it is now George's favourite toy and it has to be out on display at all times. He wants to take it with him everywhere. (laughs) He wants to take it gardening out on the balcony in the pots. He wants to put it in the shower. Not the most practical toy, but here's the thing. Practicality does not always equal fun. I feel like sometimes it's the impractical things that are the most fun. That's kids for you. Yeah, that's it. Speaking of funny things, Hazel likes the most random stuff. She'll get like bits of bark and that's like her toy. Mm. She puts it in her pocket or rocks mm. and gets very upset. <laughs> you like take the rock yeah. or the piece of bark. That's away. her rock. How dare you? Yeah, Honey chewed a piece of her bark she left on the floor. Honey's our dog. Yeah. And uh, she was very, very upset. It's like, yeah. Rachel started, I didn't realise this, but um, she started a quote thing when Asher and Hazel say funny quotes. It's great. So, love it. Yeah. Kids, man, they're a joy. Asher's classic quote today was because he hates having his hair cut or mm. washed, mm. and he says, "I don't ha- I have, I don't have hair. I have a head." <laughs> <laughs> and, and the hair is just an inconvenient <laughs> add-on to that. Ah, joys of children. Well, Murray, you preach through a very famous passage. Mm. Yeah, many Christians know John three sixteen. Mm. As Lots of Christian athletes will have it tattooed on them or yeah. know, on their jerseys. Painted under their eyes, yeah, the yeah. Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> whatever it might be. So, yeah, people are familiar with this passage, for God so loved the world. Yeah, but, yeah. actually unpacking the broader context behind mm. that. So what was your inspiration for, mm. for this passage? Yeah, well, I think the, the sort of John 3.15 or 14 and 15, rather, um, yeah, where Jesus, I, I suppose, exegetes, which is just a pretentious scholarly word for unpacks, really, <laughs> explains um, the story of Moses with the bronze serpent in the wilderness um, in a way that reveals that it was a foreshadowing of his own crucifixion. Um, I I suppose I find, as I sort of shared in the sermon, yeah, that idea of Christ equating himself to a serpent in some ways, mm. <laughs> quite a interesting uh, choice when, yeah, as, as I kind of shared on Sunday, you know, Jesus finds many more beautiful things to compare himself to, even just in John's gospel alone. Mm. So, yeah, what's going on there? Why does he choose to do that in this moment? Mm. Um, and then, yeah, as I was sort of doing some work on it, I think I found it really fascinating that there seems to be, uh, according to some scholars, yeah, some sort of subtext of the way in which Nicodemus and Jesus are communicating. Mm. Um, and I think that that's really fascinating because I think uh, rhetoric, um, which I just something that we don't really think about too much in our day and age. I think a lot of the things that we um, do and say in Australia are either um, I I say what I mean or I say it um, passive aggressively or sarcastically. Mm. I think that's the furthest we're ever going to get usually in a conversation with subtext. Um, But That's called in 
cultural studies, we're low context culture. Mm, low context. So we, yeah. Yeah. We communicate by our words. So yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that's like a really insightful thing because so I know high context cultures use what you say is yes. necessarily what you mean how your eye contact how your posture is how your tone is yeah all that plays totally. into the communication yeah I can say yeah what, what I say to you is like yeah that's what I mean yes other cultures so yeah it's a way to understand some rhetoric too yeah which some like high context cultures can find the way that we speak quite rude yeah. <laughs> um and quite yeah blunt um but we as a low context language culture can find those sort of asian or middle eastern um sort of cultures for example um almost yeah for lack of a better word avoidant or even cowardly in the way that they dance around an issue or sort of you know speak in in metaphor um i think i may have mentioned this on the podcast before but one of my teachers at mauling he was a missionary over in the middle east and jordan for yeah quite a while he was a pastor at a church there and one of the elders of his church came up to him and in a very long-winded and and rambling way started speaking to him for about 20 minutes about the way that ants work and about how ants don't need to be told by the queen what to do that ants you know know their job and they communicate with each other and work as a community fine and they serve the queen and the queen trusts them and they trust the queen um and yeah him coming from sydney australia kind of not having grown up in a high context culture was like what was that conversation about and he had to really go away and have a think about (laughs) for this old man who has lived in jordan his whole life what was he trying to say probably commenting on his leadership skills as a pastor you know and and um, the way that um, that was done was in a way to show him respect as a pastor. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a completely foreign idea for, I think, most of us, though. Yeah, <laughs> I counted a little bit of that at Regent's Park and would get immensely frustrated. Mm. Like, just tell me what you want mm. and would just sort of sometimes interrupt and just say, just, just get to the point. Yeah. Which probably offended him, but I'm like, well, like, I haven't got all day to listen to like ramblings yeah totally and i think like what's really fascinating about um this sort of scene in john is that jesus is speaking to nicodemus in his language Mm. in a way that nicodemus has started and engaged in Mm. i think that that's really important to see that i think in other moments he speaks um in ways which are less heightened um but it seems to be when he's speaking to people who are educated and elite um, and would understand that sort of context and these sort of rhetorical devices, that that's when he employs them. I think a really good example is near the end of uh, Matthew's uh, gospel in Matthew 26, 63, the high priest is, you know, accusing him um, of, you know, mm-hmm. essentially, you know, b- being a, a heretic um, when he had said that, when Jesus had said earlier, I'm going to destroy the temple and, and rebuild it in three days. And now he's, the priest is sort of saying, you know, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remains silent. Um, that idea of remaining silent in an <clears throat> on a shame culture, um, that rhetorical device was to essentially assert your dominance, that mm-hmm. I'm not going to even justify your questions with an mm-hmm. answer. Um, to us, we could read that and think that Jesus was being meek, um, mm. was, you know, sort of avoiding conflict. Yeah. But that was actually a higher staked, more sort of, um, mm. yeah, con- a higher conflict move yeah. in that actually, sort of and rhetoric. And that's, um, 
yeah, it's just phenomenal how our cultural differences are. Mm. One of the things that infuriates me in conflict is when people don't respond. Sure. Like, I was like, like, yeah. I see it as like a sign of weakness. Yeah. Like, say something. But yeah, yeah, just flipping the script for us. It's, totally. This is why I think exegeting is so important because yeah. we read scripture through our lens. Mm. There's a book called Read Scripture Western Eyes and the cover has a guy with glasses on. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, yeah, that's how we read it, often with our Western lenses on. So yeah. we miss the subtleties or yeah. completely come to different understandings of totally. the text, which isn't there. Yeah, um, oh, and look, I think you're completely right. I think probably that idea of remaining silent in an argument, I think maybe we can connect to that a little bit <laughs> if anybody's ever been in a moment where it's like, oh, I'm done, I'm not even engaging. Yeah. I likewise find that difficult. Mm. <laughs> um, but I think one thing that's really interesting about this conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus is um, from the very beginning of John's gospel, he's setting up Jesus as the word or the logos. Mm. And this idea of logos in the Greek, which is what John would have been writing in and, you know, assumedly who some of his readers, they would have been immersed in this sort of Greco-Roman culture an idea of rhetoric and logos as um, a literal word, like, but also mm. wisdom. Mm. Uh, logos kind of takes on this double meaning that the English word, word, <laughs> yeah. um, doesn't necessarily take mm. on. Um, but logos is sort of one of three frames of rhetoric that people used um, in persuasive speech. So you had ethos, which is employing people's emotions. You had, you know, sort of, oh, sorry, you had pathos, which is employing people's emotions. Mm. Ethos, which was elevating your sort of standards. So, you know, talking, proving that you were someone to be respected before mm. employing your sort of point of view. And then Logos, which is essentially winning people over with wisdom. Mm. Um, and this is definitely what Jesus is doing here in this passage. He is proving to Nicodemus that mm. he is not just filled with Logos, but he is the mm. Logos. So, yeah, there's there's so much going on behind the, uh, the lines here. And isn't Jesus exegeting of scriptures? If Jesus hadn't have said this, I would never have looked at Numbers 21 and gone, huh, that bronze serpent points to Jesus. Mm. But when like Jesus, yeah. And Jesus does that with the Sadducees as well when he says, hey, you know, you don't believe in a resurrection? Well, Moses the burning bush, Yahweh says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, he's not the God of the, the dead, but the living. And you're like, yeah. what? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's almost expectation. You should know this. Yeah. And that's, Yeah. Like with Nicodemus, it's almost like, oh, you should have known this. You're a teacher. You should have been able to point this, yeah. put this together. Yeah, which again, so like Clink sort of sees that as him almost mocking Nicodemus' mm. you know, original call when he calls Jesus rabbi. It's like, oh, well, you kind of mocked me a bit by throwing this title back in my face. Now I'm, I'm calling you out. But I think at the same time, we do see this super high expectation of Jesus in his mm. parables as well. Like the, the parable of the sower and his disciples mm. come to him and he's like, do you not get this? And you're like, wow, like Jesus puts a really high expectation and standard on his followers. Mm. And I think that that once again, even going back to, you know, Lectio Divina, it, it, it calls us and should compel us to, deeply wrestle and meditate with scripture because I think that the standard that Jesus puts for us in understanding 
um, is actually really high. Mm. And I would say it's probably an unrealistic standard because the point is that we should continue to Mm. strive towards that excellence and perfection and holy understanding Mm. that Jesus has. But yeah, I mean... let us never get apathetic about mm. how well we understand the Bible because we see right here in this, you know, exegeting of the bronze serpent, like there is always so much more yeah. to understand. Yes. And I don't know, did we talk about, did you talk about the bronze snake? We did unpack Numbers 21 a bit. Look, so, we um, unpacked it a little bit, but please, yeah, yeah let's, oh, let's look, chat about it. Yeah. Go ahead, Murray. Oh, oh well, look, I mean, it's it's a passage which kind of pops up in the in the middle of the, the wilderness narrative. The people of God are, are grumbling and complaining that there's not enough water, that the manna, the food that God's been providing, isn't good enough, and that, yeah, God has ultimately, by their assertion, you know, just deserted them. Um, so God gets really offended by this crumbling and, yeah, sends what a, a literal translation of the Hebrews, fiery serpents. Mm. And the idea is that their venom is so mm. toxic that when they get bitten, it feels like fire is shooting through their blood, which is quite a it's <laughs> pretty vis- vi- visual Look, uh, image. Like after having a snake in the office, which was a harmless green tree snake. Hopefully. Which, Maybe baby brown. No, nah, 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 it was definitely a green tree. Um, I, I googled images of okay. snakes and it wasn't that like Yeah, imagine snakes attacking you. Like snakes on a plane. Yeah. But in the wilderness. Yeah. Biting you. Yeah. It's, I mean... And they're so far, like, so, you can't do anything. There's, so living here on site, there's heaps of different wildlife. Mm. And we have uh, some blue tongues mm. and water dragons that live here. They move like lightning. Mm. Where soon, like, you couldn't, can't even react to how fast they yeah. move. So imagine having all these snakes just attacking you. They're yeah. Lightning fast. Yeah. So, I mean, look, it, it, it's this moment where, yeah, the Israelites are like, oh, no, we screwed up and recognize these fiery serpents as, you know, God's answer mm. or response to their rebellion and all rebellious sort of grumbling. Um, so then they come to Moses and go, hey, look, like we've screwed up, like literally mediate you know intercede Mm. for us um between us and god so yeah moses goes to god and 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 prays and and god tells him to make this again a brazen or fiery serpent so this this metal serpent Mm. um and yeah put it on a flagpole and lift it up and all who look on it um who've been bitten will will live and not die um i mean it, it is probably one of those things where I think in hindsight, I'm like, yeah, obviously it's it's Christ being lifted up mm. and exalted on a cross. But yeah, I, I also agree with you that without John 3, 14 yeah. and 15, probably not so obvious. Would, wouldn't it, it would have taken a long time for the scholars to get there. But I can see the connection. This aren't we, You spoke about this a bit. Like we're obviously snake symbolizing death. Yeah. Like obviously the serpent in the garden. There's mm. snakes unclean, represented evil. Goliath in his armor is described as having scales like mm. a serpent. Mm. There's this sort of idea that snakes are evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a symbol of death equals life, and exactly like that with a cross. Mm. Like something that equals death. Yeah. Brings life to us in this paradoxical way that only Jesus can yeah. do. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that I'm. Um yeah, I'm not exegeting scripture anymore. I'm, I'm broadening the sort of symbol, but I find it fascinating that the uh, answer to a snake bite is anti-venom. 
mm. which like you need the venom of a snake to make the antivenom. Mm. I think there's something like beautiful in that, that in the same way to, you know, defeat the death of a snake mm. bite in a maybe more medical <laughs> way. Um, yeah, you, you need the very essence mm. of the death itself to defeat the original mm. thing. And you likewise, you know, for Jesus to have defeated death and sin um, and yeah, a, a, a broken distance from God. He needed to mm. physically become those things and manifest mm. them, which for me, I think that was a really big revelation because mm. um, yeah, we be- can become desensitized to the story of the passion and rem- being reminded once more that Jesus didn't, just take on our sin but you know as 2 Corinthians says when when Paul writes like Mm. became Mm. sin like that's different (laughs) yes Um, it wasn't just any man that was crucified lots of Jewish males were crucified in the first century yeah it wasn't it wasn't uniquely Jesus but yeah it's unique in the sense that it wasn't just any man dying yeah that whole literally becoming sin yeah yeah very profound and totally that's something that yeah like you said we don't think about enough the horror of the crucifixion also the horror of separation mm. from god yeah so some some scholars suggest when jesus quotes from psalm 22 my god my god why have you forsaken me that's sort of the moment where god's wrath's being poured out upon mm. him yeah you know, it's this separation that yeah well, yeah, and I, I, I can't help but wonder in some ways with Jesus being God, whether a separation from God is even more painful for him yeah. than just someone who's 100% human and mm. not 100% human and 100% God. Like, that's just pure speculation, but mm. it's just, you know, his very identity is being just mm. stripped from him in that moment. Like, it's just this... Yeah, I, I can't even begin to imagine mm. what that would be like. And I think that that is part of the point, that it mm. is beyond our full human comprehension to understand what happened on that cross. Mm. Um, yeah. And look, it's, it's really interesting. The sort of character of Nicodemus is um, one who, yeah, I, I found it quite interesting the way a lot of scholars saw him as this perfect representative at that moment for the nation of Israel, for the people mm. of Israel. Obviously, Jesus, in a another way and mm. more perfect way, was also a representative mm-hmm. of Israel. But, you know, Nicodemus is almost the representative of those literal people at that time of Israel. Um, and there's, yeah, some really interesting stuff. Obviously, um, John 3, 1 itself mm. tells us that he was both a Pharisee and a, a member of the Jewish council. Um, but there's um, the scholar Borkham um, did some pretty fascinating sort of historical research. I'll just read this little quote out. Um, he revealed that, um, yeah, ancient sources, because obviously just to quickly asterisk this, um, people, Jewish, Jewish, you know, elite who were members of the Sanhedrin uh, were, yeah, by their very nature had records much uh, mm. more thoroughly kept. So when we're trying to find out about Nicodemus, as somebody who was part of that Jewish council, we actually 
could be like, oh, well, there, there might actually be some records of this person. He's not just, you know, some carpenter mm-hmm. from a backwater yep. town in Nazareth. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he was an important figure who would have had, you know, mm-hmm. records of him. So anyway, Borkham um, recently shown that sources reveal only four Palestinian Jews between 330 BC and 200 AD who had the name Nicodemus. So only four Palestinian Jews. And all four belong to the same party, the Gurian family. So after reconstructing the Gurian family and seeing the clear connection between Gurian and the name Nicodemus, Borkham concludes that Nicodemus was a member of a single, very wealthy, very prominent Jewish family of Pharisaic allegiance. Uh, And then, yeah, uh, Edward Clink goes on to say, the very name Nicodemus, which means conqueror of the people, along with the military meaning behind the name Gurian, suggests that the family's unusual and distinctive names are those appropriate to military heroes. So it may be that the first Gurian, or the first Nicodemus, was a successful general in the uh, uh, Hasmonean period, um, won the name in the first place as a laudatory nickname and received landed estates as a reward for his distinguished service. Um, So yeah, do you want to tell us a bit about the Hasmonean period? Yeah, Hasmonean Empire. Um, So when a Chinese Epikines IV, who, depending on how you read the book of Daniel, some people read the um, abomination that leads to desolation. Daniel Daniel talking about him. So Pioneers was a Greek uh, ruler and he sacrificed a pig in the Holy of Holies and so that Mac, so Judas or Judah Maccabees. That's a fun little fact there. Whenever you have a kid called Judah, his Greek version is Judas. Or Jude. He, yeah, Jude, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I remember saying that to someone and it devastated them because everyone thinks Judas is like a traitor. I was like, well, Judas yeah. is... Too. Anyway, um, so Judas Maccabees led a revolt and the yeah the Hasmonean Empire was a Jewish... Um, so between the Old and New Testament, Hasmoneans actually... So they were Jewish kings yeah. for a period and then yeah. the Hasmoneans... Ooh, I'd have to read a book. It's been a while since, but basically King Herod, he's an, an Egemean and Edomite. And so it, so from Esau, so he kind of takes over. So it's interesting you got for a while the Hasmoneans, this Jewish yeah. like, ruling. Like for over a hundred years. Yeah, like, yeah. And kings. And so sort of in that sense, Jacob, yeah, in inverted yeah. commas, is ruling Israel, Judah, as it should be. Yeah. And then Esau takes over through Herod. So that's yeah. why the Jews hated Herod so much because yeah. he was an Egemean. So the, yeah. yeah, it was sort of that period. And so the heroes at that time, yeah, people like Judas Maccabees, the seven unnamed brothers who refused to eat pork mm. and were killed one by one. So there was a real, yeah, Jesus comes in and says, oh, it doesn't matter what you eat. Mm. Like so, yeah. So this is what we like fought and died yeah, over. Yeah, what do you mean? Like, like yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter. This, so. Yeah, this isn't just God's word. Like yeah. this is like very literally being yeah. like a bloodbath yeah. for, for this. So it was um, yeah. So which is the the underlying sense of um division between different I guess ruling classes like the Pharisees and the Sadducees because some saw the Rome the oppressors who just needed to be eradicated. Where you get zealots mm. to get back to that. Mm. Um, yeah, Hasmonean Empire. Mm. In John 6, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, John makes a note that they want to make him king. And Jesus mm. is like, yeah, I'm going to get out of here because I'm not that type of king. So that's what they wanted. They wanted, yeah, someone like a Judas mm. to come in and wipe out the Romans. Yeah, so. they, they won this military conqueror. And yeah. I think, yeah, it's just interesting because obviously this conversation that, um, you know, Nicodemus is having, um, I, I, it, I feel like... 
he would have likewise had this messianic expectation of of a military yeah. leader coming back. Um, so yeah, what what Jesus is talking about that you know very truly no one can enter the kingdom of God until unless they are born of water and the Spirit. And talking about this idea that the kingdom that's coming in is not one that's of military power and might, mm. um, but one which is from heaven and going mm. to look very very different. Mm. Um, so yeah, you can only assume with that sort of you know pretty conclusive yeah. ancestral background of Nicodemus, it would have been a pretty uh revolutionary teaching just in and of itself yeah um well obviously there's a confusion when jesus says and it's interesting the greek which you very unhelpful which very helpfully i should say not unhelpfully yeah. very helpfully unpacked for us yeah. um yeah <clears throat> yeah you shall you must be born again or born from above yeah the anothen yeah anothen, yeah it's interesting and i think like you said there's that that dual play yeah. which we just can't get in English of, yeah, again and above and clearly there's that confusion of Nicodemus like that's part of it there there's this Jesus talking about a deeper spiritual reality mm. which he yeah can't comprehend just yet because mm. as Jesus says very true I tell you no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and spirit mm. and yeah it's doing a little bit of just reading so there's like there's debate about what that means mm. but yeah, so I think the best view is to look at like those passages in Isaiah mm. and Ezekiel where it talks about God spirit and but like personified as water like yeah. Ezekiel I'm going to sprinkle you with clean water like yeah. Ezekiel 36 or Isaiah 44 it's like I'll pour water on a thirsty desert and yeah. my spirit as well water and spirit being linked totally together. yeah I don't think that water and spirit should be seen as opposing yeah. ideas um, but I definitely see water as being a physicalization of the spirit mm. symbolically yeah. um, that it's this idea that you know that the spirit which you know Jesus even mm. talks about is like the wind you know you mm. don't know where it comes from or where it's going and even that's a play like he's using totally well he would have been speaking Aramaic but yeah. it's Numa, which also yeah. means both similar to Rura yeah totally and I think that that's really interesting in all this that we've got once again Jesus as you've pointed out would have been speaking in Aramaic, which creates a very interesting question of how is this tension kind of happening with all these mm. word plays with all of this stuff going on? Um, even again, extra biblical, but in the mm. chosen, it sort of displays this moment as Jesus and Nicodemus having this very private conversation on a rooftop in the middle mm. of the night. And the apostle John, along with, I think Andrew, but anyway, one of the other disciples um, hiding behind a brick wall, <laughs> kind of writing it down. And, you know, it kind of like brings up all these interesting questions yeah. of how is this conversation recorded? Mm. How did this all happen? Yeah. Um, but I think one thing which is interesting is um, the Apostle John, I think more so than any of the three synoptic writers, really inserts himself as a narrative voice mm. a lot more into his gospel. And that's a debate, which I don't know if we're going to talk about, but I'm going to bring it up. So yeah. in the NIV, if you look at verse 15, it ends in quotation marks. Yeah. And there's a little footnote, G, which says, <laughs> some interpreters end the quotation of verse 21. And that's what a lot of commentators say. We don't actually know is Jesus, because it's, in the original Greek manuscripts, well, they were written in uppercase with no spaces. Yeah. See, so like, and no quotation marks or full stops or commas. See, so like, yeah. Is this a new sentence? Is yeah. this Jesus? So no you have to make an interpretive No lowercase. No grammar. No like, punctuation. You have to make an interpretive choice. Yeah. So some interpreters say, well, this is all Jesus' words. Some yeah. say, well, it's from verse 16 for God so loved the world. It's John's yeah. word. Like, yeah. It's not quoting from Jesus. Like, yeah. So here's the thing John 3 16. 
The word of God, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Whether that came through the hand of the Apostle yes. John as a narrative voice yeah. adding an aside, or whether that came from the lips of Christ yeah. himself, we kind of don't know. We don't. And but what we do know is it is the word yeah. of God still. But it is, I think, a fascinating idea, and something that we see as a tension a lot of the time in mm. John's Gospel, where you're like, okay, is, is John inserting himself mm. here? Or is this a continuation of, of somebody else's dialogue? But yeah, I mean, Nicodemus just inconspicuously disappears. Yeah, regardless, <laughs> regardless if it's Jesus speaking all the way to verse 21 or it's John's comments, like he does, he just sort of vanishes off. Yeah, uh, yeah until chapter you, 7 and then 19. Yeah, yeah and it's, um, it, it is interesting. Well, I had a profound point. It was so profound that I've forgotten oh, about. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, no. I know I remember. It's... Yeah, it's amazing just like reflecting upon this and how Jesus really gets stuck into him about the whole being born again mm. from above and water and him not understanding that. Yeah. And that's, um, we spoke about this earlier about the, I guess, Jesus sort of benchmark or expectation yeah. upon people. But yeah, I find it like verse 12. I've spoken to you about earthly things and you do not believe then how will you believe if I speak of heavenly things and it's almost yeah. like well I'm not going like, to I'm not going to continue this conversation with you yeah yeah if I got into that kind of you know rhetoric of yeah conflict it's almost like well I'm not even going to like you, yeah, this is, you're almost dishonouring me yeah. by not actually understanding what I think what is quite plain teaching but this is the crazy thing this super high bar that Nicodemus is isn't able to clear mm. is in Jesus's mind the entry level. Yeah. It's like, well, if you can't get this, like you, you just yeah. wait. I've got even greater teachings, which yeah. I think, wow, like here's this, you know, esteemed Jewish rabbi mm. who is struggling with these mm. profound, deep teachings that Jesus says, this is this is ground level, mate. This is this yeah. is the basement. You're not even at ground level yet. Like, if you can't understand this, like, I, I can't take you up to the penthouse right mm. now, you know. And there's this idea that as profound and insightful as these teachings are, it's just the beginning. And mm. I think, I don't know if we've spoken about this on air or off air before, but, you know, I, I sometimes wonder what kind of revelation and insight are we going to receive in heaven? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But even how Jesus jumps around from verse 12, he's like, okay, you, why do I speak of heaven? No one's gone to heaven except the one who comes from heaven. And then he just goes, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. It's just like, yeah, yeah, so much just packed in there. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. And I, probably, like, it's a lovely verse, John three sixteen. Oh, but yeah. I think definitely. it's just been so overused and stripped out of its context that you sort mm. of miss the the complexity mm. of this argument and the depth of it because even because numbers 21 obviously is about the bronze serpent or snake but then in two kings in 18 we find out that the israelites were worshiping it mm. so obviously there's like as nicodemus would understand he goes he's yeah obviously talking about moses but there's also that background too that this thing also was worshipped so there's a yeah even more of a interesting yeah yeah no I mean, it's interesting because it's sort of like a yeah N.T. Wright says when the New Testament quotes from the old you meant to look at the broader context mm. not just that verse but they're talking about the wider passage mm. and I'm sure here like that's part of it when mm. you think about Moses lifting up the bronze serpent mm. there's also in your mind oh Hezekiah had to destroy that thing mm. too so mm. yeah something that's a symbol of death also became 
something of worship. Which I suppose too could be a, a danger we could fall in, which is not what the passage is talking about, but worshipping the cross rather than... What Catholics do, they always present Jesus still on the cross. Hmm. Which, you know, it's in, yeah, most of their crucifix have Jesus on it. It's not an empty yeah. cross. It's a cross that's focusing more upon that hmm. than the empty tomb. Which we have joked we should change the logo of the centre to an empty tomb. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. A soccer ball rolling <laughs> away. <laughs> as, as Rather the than stone the ball and the, the cross. And yeah, look, I um, agree with you. And, and yes, and I think I think that, yeah, let, let's not just uh, rag on Catholics. I think, mm. you know, Protestants can be really guilty, whether there's still a Christ on that cross or not, mm. of focusing on the crucifixion and not on the resurrection. Mm. Um, and I, I love that idea that N.T. Wright talks about, that really we're actually, you know, at the beginning of Act 5 of a play. Mm. You know, Jesus' death isn't even the end of Act 4. His resurrection is the end of Act mm. 4 because that's the new life that we're now stepping into, that holy in spirit, invigorated and resurrected life that we now step into at the start of Act 5 as this, you know, f- final act mm. of the play that obviously Jesus' second coming is, is that, mm. you know, final consummation right at the end. But I think that, yeah, I, I think it's a really insightful point that you make that we can focus ourselves on the crucifix a lot more than the Act 5 that we're now stepping into. Mm. Um, yeah, it's there's, there's, there's a lot of balance there to be found. Mm. <laughs> there is. Uh, look, it's a, it's a beautiful passage of Scripture, and, it's, and in some ways, too, I think is Protestant evangelicals, a passage which for a long time was the core cry for people to come to salvation. Mm. It's like, ye must be born again. That's a lot mm. the, particularly around the, the Great Awakening. And it is it is a fantastic image to think about, like, have you been born again? And mm. I have a saying, it's language that's probably fallen a little bit out of vogue to be sure. used in churches. But, yeah. yeah, it's a question that, well, Paul talks about, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a question that we should ask of ourselves have we been born again mm. born of the spirit mm. yeah we're chatting in our prayer time about some older christians perhaps needing to actually go through mm. alpha or some sort of basic mm. christianity because perhaps mm. some actually haven't been born again yeah if they've been in church it's just like a cultural element mm. so yeah mm. that real mm. Yeah. yeah, and 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 old, not just in age. <laughs> no, no, yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, no. I, I think that we can. Um, well, again, it, it comes back to this idea that the teachings of Jesus aren't a one and done. This is this is the whole point that's being revealed in this passage, and that to call Jesus our Lord, our Savior, our Rabbi, <laughs> isn't just putting your hand up at a Billy Graham conference. Mm. It's also then just like his disciples, just like Nicodemus did, sitting at the feet of Jesus each day and trying to more deeply understand these Mm. complex teachings. And, you know, I think that there is a a simple gospel, um, which is important um, to be communicated simply and Mm. accessibly. Uh, But I think that it is built on a foundation of complexity that we are not just encouraged, but really, you know, yeah, just expected to, by Jesus, continue to to dig deeper into. Yeah. And, look, I guess that's one of the things that the early church 
or not even just the early church, but the church for a very long time, their expectations on monks mm. and yeah, priests was it was a lifelong mm. commitment of study mm. uh, and service. Um, I know in the Comran community, it's a bunch of, I think John the Baptist might have been from Comran. It's mm. a bit of, yeah, they were kind of ascetics that lived in the wilderness. I think it to have 10 years of study or something mm. to be able to be like eligible <laughs> to yeah. become like a teacher and yeah this uh, reading somewhere about a, a rabbi who memorized all the mishnah and gave his books away he goes oh, i've memorized it I don't. <laughs> like the mishnah was like, it's written on my heart I yeah like it. a mishnah is like jewish commentary on yeah. the old testament so there's this yeah but yeah. but at the same time too it's interesting like a lot of these groups that Jesus encounters they had deep knowledge of the scripture mm. but didn't truly understand it and so mm. you go to the synoptic gospels and yeah I'm thinking of Mark when Jesus talks about the parables may they be ever seeing but mm. never perceiving mm. and so mm. yeah just because you can know something doesn't mean that you know scripture yeah and, um, I, there's, there's I think a continually unfurling revelation Mm. And I think that that doesn't just go for us individually, but I think as a wider Christian community, mm. I think of, you know, just at college studying these, you know, theologians who have made these tremendous impacts and contributions to the development of the church's theology mm. who, you know, a hundred, 200, 300 years before that, that the church didn't have that revelation mm. yet. And it's not that, the scripture isn't complete and there's still mm. these Gnostic secrets. Mm. But I think that there is a deeper revelation that is still to, to be further unpacked that I think won't be completed until we're in, no. in, in perfect communion with God. But yeah, there's let's, let us never become apathetic that mm. there's not more to learn. <laughs> yes. As, uh, as, Sa as Samuel said to Saul, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mm. So there's a, sense of yeah knowing scripture but needs to be lived out yeah amen so it's a it's a and both <laughs> mm. well speaking of samuel <laughs> perfect <laughs> segue, segue yeah. we're uh, heading into our sort of final official series for yeah. the term i think we've already sort of teased it out quite oh, yeah. a bit um but yeah we're, we're looking at the books of one and two or mm. the book if you want to go old yeah, school yeah, of samuel, samuel. Yeah. uh what are you sharing on this weekend um, for us? so we're looking at uh, Hannah's um, narrative, so mm. her prayer for a son and her song, mm. and how the clash between the elite priesthood of Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phineas, mm. clashing with Hannah, who's quite a, a lowly non elite, and mm. how her son transforms the world, and mm. I'm showing that with Mary, how. In a sense, Hannah's barrenness transformed Israel because Samuel came in and, in a sense, replaced mm. Eli and mm. his sons mm. and led to the monarchy. Mm. And how ultimately that, that monarch, that the king he anointed, David, he has, you know, a future son. Mm. And so looking at how these two women, like Hannah and Mary, both lowly women, transformed the world. And that's wow. how God, and that's what, yeah, that's what's implied with like mm. Samuel is that mm. it's not the, the the elite, the elevated, the proud that will transform the world. It's mm. the lowly and humble. So, mm. so that's the plan for this series is to look at Samuel and then look at like aspects of how Jesus fulfills that. So some of it will be mm. at Christmas. So this week's an easy one because yeah. it's about 
Hannah Song, Mary Song. There's, yeah. but some weeks will be yeah, yeah. like when Israel wants a king, looking yeah. at how that and how. We have no king but Caesar. So yeah. it'll be the life of Jesus, which I think Christmas yeah. we can just focus on the birth. Yeah. But I see Christmas is not just the birth, it's focusing on every aspect yeah. of Jesus. So I love it. How David's life is a is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Yeah. I love it. Right. And yeah, love how, you know, from from all greater, you know, bi- biblical characters come from faithful women as well. Yes. You know? It's quite yeah. beautiful. So awesome. Well, looking forward to uh I won't be there on Sunday, but hearing yeah. it back uh yeah. in hindsight. And then, and then for the podcast we'll unpack so I have like I even have a schedule I've written for a long time. You, you got a banter schedule. schedule. I have a banter mm. schedule. So you go with David because it's a huge, a huge, two books or one book. Yeah. How you want to read it? Yeah. So, so we don't want to. We're going to jump across a lot of chapters. So yeah. You know, at least in banter, we can sort of fill in some of those gaps. Love it. So, so good. Looking forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for joining thanks, us, guys. Mate. I will see not you see you Sunday, but no. Mitch will. <laughs> <laughs> see you then. See you guys. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to help others discover this channel. Check out the description if you want to find out more or get in touch with us at the Center Dural. But in the meantime, praying for God's hand over you as you continue to step into everything Jesus has in store for your life. Be blessed.